You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Rebus had lost count of the number of cases he'd worked. Cases often as complex as this one requiring interview after interview, statement after statement. He thought of the material in the boxes, now being poured over by those around him, paperwork generated in order to show effort rather than with any great hope of achieving a result. Yes, he'd been on cases like that and others where he'd despaired of all the doors knocked on, the blank faces of the questioned. But sometimes a clue or a lead emerged, or two people came forward to furnish the same name. Suspects were whittled down, alibis and stories unravelling after the third or fourth retelling. Pressure was sustained, enough evidence garnered to present to the procurator fiscal. And then there were the lucky breaks. The things that just happened. Nothing to do with dogged perseverance or shrewd deduction. Just sheer, bloody happenstance. Was the end result any less of a victory? Yes, always. It was possible that there was something he had missed in the files, some connection or thread. Watching the team at work, he couldn't decide if he would want them to find it or not. It would make him look stupid, lazy, out of touch. On the other hand, they needed a break, even at the expense of his vanity. So he watched them, their heads bowed as they sifted through the documents, chewing on their pens, underlining, making notes, or typing their thoughts into their computers, putting together more detailed chronologies, deciding who should be questioned, ready to suggest some avenue that had been missed, either by the original inquiry or by Rebus himself. Ian Rankin is the author of 18 novels featuring Detective Inspector John Rebus. He's won the Edgar Award, the Golden Dagger, the Diamond Dagger for Lifetime Achievement, and the Chandler Fulbright Award. His new novel that brings Rebus back into print is Standing in Another Man's Grave. Thank you for joining me, Ian. Thank you. Ian, one of the things that strikes me about this character is his depth and how rich this life feels when we read about it. You've been living with this man for a long time. I'd like you to just talk about creating him for the first time and how long you thought he might last when you first wrote about him. Well, I was a student when I invented Rebus. I was a postgraduate student. I was doing a PhD thesis on the novels of Muriel Spark, uh, Edinburgh uh, born novelist um, who wrote famously The Prime of Miss Jean Brodie, among other works. And he just popped into my head one night. I mean, I was writing. I was writing short stories, and I'd written a couple of novels that had never been published. And I've actually got the notes. I mean, I've got the first notes that I took, which was, you know, the notion of a a guy who's being harassed or sent puzzles by someone who seems to be a stranger but may have been known to him in his past, And to my mind at the time when I was plotting it, it was going to be a reworking of Jekyll and Hyde. It was going to be about the dark side of human nature. And it just, I just happened to make the guy a cop. I think the original note to myself on a, on a, just a a scrap of paper says main character, may be a cop. I didn't read crime fiction. I didn't read mystery novels. I don't know. I, you know, it was just luck, I guess, that I made him a cop. I didn't know he was going to stick around. I had no idea that. I'd be writing about him 25 years down the line. 
And he was older than me. I was 24, 25. He was 40. He was divorced. I wasn't married. He had a kid. I didn't. He'd left school at 15, joined the army, and then drifted into the police. I'd left school at 18 and gone straight to university. Although we came from the same village in Scotland, we were very dissimilar in many ways, and we still are. I think one of the things that also runs really strongly through these books is the landscape of Scotland. It informs the character. It informs every word, I think, that you write because we feel so immersed in it. It's a very interesting landscape, isn't it? It is. I mean, most of the books are set in and around Edinburgh, which is the city I live in. It's a a city that I've been writing about ever since I went there as a student. I didn't grow up in Edinburgh. I grew up about 20 miles further north in a little coal mining town. So I only really started to get to know the place as a student. And to me, it was a big, complex mechanism. And I wanted to find out what made it work. And the only way to do that was to write fiction about the place. And that process is ongoing. I'm still trying to explore the city and find out what makes it tick. And so I need to keep writing novels to allow me to do that. And Rebus is my explorer. You know, he's my, uh, he's my spokesperson in that. But I also then, once I got to know the place a little bit better, found I could use it as a microcosm for Scotland as a whole. But in this book, I was keen to get Rebus out of Edinburgh, keen to get him away from his comfort zone and show him that this small, complicated country of Scotland is more complicated than he thinks and that there are different Scotlands out there. So when I take him a couple of hundred miles away from Edinburgh, up into the Highlands where you can drive for hours and never see another car, he begins to get a sense of, of the, the, the remoteness and the desolation. But also that there are people who live there for whom places like Edinburgh and Glasgow, the two main cities, mean absolutely nothing. There's a guy who's a, a member of parliament for an island off the way off the north coast of Scotland. And for, you know, to put in his expenses claims for his travel, he had to say what his nearest mainland railway station was. This is a Scottish guy who happens to work as a member of parliament in London. His closest uh, mainline railway station was Bergen in Norway. Wow. Gives you a sense of how far Shetland, the island of Shetland, is from London. Um, so there are parts of Scotland that are closer to Scandinavia than they are to the seat of power in Westminster. Well, it's so interesting, that feeling of the remote landscape, because uh, this novel, the crime in this novel, uh, unfolds along the roads. And you give us a great sense of these roads where there's nothing beside it. He's driving his car. Uh, so talk about just designing the crime to fit this new landscape for you. The original notes for this book, it wasn't a Rebus novel when I started thinking about it. It was a parent of a... The original note to myself said something like, the parent of a child who went missing a decade back cannot let go. They keep searching for the child. They keep searching for meaning. They try and build a mythology around the loss, what might have happened to their child. And they haunt the stretch of road where the child was last seen. And the A9, which is the road where this all happens, is a fascinating road to me because it starts off in central Scotland, halfway between Edinburgh and Glasgow. It snakes through a couple of cities and then heads up into um, mountainous country um, with ski resorts and snow on the mountaintops. And it just keeps going until it hits the north coast of Scotland. So it runs up the spine of the country. And I would drive up and down there a lot because I enjoyed the road. And when most of us drive, 
We have, we have a destination in mind, and that's all that matters to us is the destination. So the road barely exists for us. If you pause along the route and step away from the road for a little while, you get a sense of a very different place. It's got an organic, creative life of its own. I wanted my, uh, when, it, when I realized it was a Rebus novel, I thought, well, I want Rebus to see that. So he will encounter people who work in gas stations. He will encounter people who are stopping their car to go walk in the hills. He will encounter people who drive long-distance lorries, traveling salespeople, tourists, people who work on the roads, construction crews. And that's what happens in the book, is that the road itself becomes a microcosm for the kind of country he lives in, which is more complex than he thinks when he lives in Edinburgh. As uh, Reba starts this book, he's uh, in retirement, a sort of semi-retirement. And as an author, you've had this character, you've been driving him around for 20 years. And he's had a lot of you know cases where he's in charge. And I'd like you to talk about, A, deciding to let him go, and B, bringing him back from Reichenbach, which <laughs> you made it a little bit easier on yourself. <laughs> yeah, a little bit. I didn't kill him off at the end of the um, previous book. Well, what happened was, you know, in the first book when I wrote it, which was meant to be a one-off, not a start of a series, he was already 40 years old. I then decided I was going to write more books with this guy because I wanted to write about contemporary Scotland, politics, society. And I thought the character of the detective allows me access to every different layer of society from the top, the politicians, the corporations, the business people who run them, to the bottom, to the disenfranchised, the disaffected, the dispossessed. One detective, one character allows you to explore these different layers. But I decided also that the series would take place in real time which would allow me to look at the changing nature of Scotland. So 20 years on, he's 60, and a cop that I know gets in touch, and he says, hey, Ian, are you remembering that the detectives in Scotland retire at 60? I said, what? I thought it was 65. That's a general retirement age for men in the UK, 65. He said, no. He said, if you're a uniformed officer, it's 55. If you're a detective, it's 60. Oh, he's got to retire. So I told my publishers this in 2006. I said, hey, the next book, by the way, is going to be the last one. Well, they were furious. They said, nobody will notice, just stop the clock. You know, nobody will notice. I mean, some detectives in fiction are in their, you know, they're centenarians, they're in their hundreds, not mentioning any names. But um, I said, no, no, I can't, because the books have made a virtue out of this chronology and, and sticking to real time. So Rebus had to retire. Then I got the notion for this book, and this is five years on. I mean, I got the notion for this book. I thought, wait a minute, if you're the parent of a missing child or someone who's been missing for a long time, you'd be keeping in touch with the police to make sure they're still the, the investigation is still active or you want them to know that you're still wanting to know what happened to your child. And that would be the cold case unit because it by now is a cold case. And that's what I knew Rebus was doing. Although he retired, there's a real-life unit in Edinburgh that is staffed by three retired detectives and one serving detective and just looks at old unsolved cases. I thought, this is perfect for Rebus. So he will have applied to do this and this is what he will have been doing since we last saw him. So that's who the parent goes to talk to. Now, I was then worried. I thought, well, hang on a minute. Is his voice still there? It's been five years since I wrote about this guy. Has he left the building? So the first few pages of actual writing were, were trepidatious. It wasn't until he started talking and he was desperate for a cigarette and he went to, back to the station and he was voicing off at his superior officers. And I thought, oh, yeah, he's back. He's been sitting there locked in a little compartment in my head and he's delighted to be allowed out to play again. 
that really shows through in your prose in this book. It's it's a total delight to read from beginning to end. And I'd like you to talk about creating this uh, voice. He's a third-person voice, and it's uh, quite closely observed. And one of the things that you do very effectively is occasionally you'll jump out of him and take us somewhere else and then come back. And I think this is a great, uh, you know, a, a cut and pacing kind of uh, plotting device that you use really well. Well, I mean, thanks. Um, during the course of the series, because I've had a lot of books to experiment with how I tell these stories. I mean, at one point I was going to take it into the first person. I nearly took Rebus into the first person. But I would have lost then the ability to jump to different characters and different places and to give a different perspective. And one of the things I liked in this book was getting a different perspective on Rebus. So what does his ex-colleague Siobhan think of him? Or think of the fact that he's back, having not been a cop for five years, which meant that she's no longer his colleague, she can come out from under his shadow. How does she suddenly feel when the old guy walks back in again? Then we've got Cafferty, who's a villain who used to run Edinburgh. Like Rebus, he's a dinosaur. He's the last of his kind. There's an empathy between the two of them. They see a strange new world coming along that they no longer feel part of. How does he feel about his relationship with the world and his relationship with Rebus? Then you've got the young, kind of hungry, venal villain who I bring in uh, to the book as well. We start to get a sense of him and how he can take over from Cafferty and how he, you know, how he, how he might build up his empire. I couldn't do that if it was all in the first person. We couldn't suddenly go and look at these people. And it just it just feels right. I don't know. I don't think about this stuff too much. I don't teach creative writing. I, I've never And I've never been taught creative writing. Everything I know about writing, I've learned by reading books. So I've looked at other mystery writers. I've looked at other novelists, novelists I admire. I look at their um, texture, their tone, their narrative style. How do they do that? How do they get, how do they do this? And then, you know, I just steal their ideas, their ways of telling a story. If there's a better way of telling a story, I'll use that way of telling the story. This way for this book worked. One of the things that's so effective about Rebus as a character is his sense of rebellion. And you keep it really muted, but it makes him really fun to be with. And I can imagine it must be really fun to write. Yeah. Um, I mean, I, 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 Rebus lives, lives in a real city. Edinburgh, and he drinks in a real pub, the Oxford Bar, which is also where I drink. So fans will often make the pilgrimage from all over the world. They'll come to Edinburgh, they'll walk in his footsteps, and eventually they will come into the Oxford Bar. And I think they're hugely disappointed when he's not there. It's me. Because I'm not as dark as him, I'm not as dangerous, I'm not as brooding, I'm not as damaged, I'm not as conflicted. I'm, you know, lots of, you know, he's a more interesting character than I am. Um, and they want to meet him, they don't want to meet me. Now I get to I get, I get a great sense, a great thrill from being able to hide behind him and say things which, you know, probably in real life I wouldn't be able to say because I'm a bit too wishy-washy liberal, you know. He, can, he sees the world very much in terms of black and white. He's an Old Testament kind of guy. If, if you've broken a law, then forever in a day, you know, you, you're not, you know, you cannot be a good person. Siobhan, sometimes I use to try and persuade him that the world is, is more the shades, there are gradations, and it isn't, isn't just black and white, good and evil, there are gradations there that he's refusing to see. But it is certainly a lot of fun being inside the head of a maverick, someone who isn't afraid to speak his mind. And that's why Malcolm Fox, who's the internal affairs cop in this book, part of the reason why he dislikes Rebus and, and wants to bring him down is he's jealous of the fact that Rebus has got away with this for so long. 
that unlike almost every other cop um, in Scotland, somehow Rebus has managed to maintain his job, not being fired, not being sacked, while still, you know, thumbing his nose at authority. He's really, Rebus is really unsuited to being a cop because he doesn't work well in a team. He doesn't work well as part of a hierarchy. He likes to mouth off at people, especially his bosses. He operates almost like a private eye within the police, which may be to do with the fact that the first crime novels I read and enjoyed were American crime novels, which tended to be from the private eye tradition. So Rebus has a little parallel investigation within the police where he does his own thing, and they let him get on with it because he usually gets results. So he operates outside the usual team thing, and he doesn't always obey the rules. And that really annoys the internal affairs cop in this book. He calls him a maverick, as you do. And one of the things I really liked Fox, and I thought that he was a nice kind of, you have different levels of villains, and we'll talk about the different levels of villains, but I want to talk about Fox, who got his own two books. Talk about creating uh, Malcolm Fox. In these books, as I say, he seems a little bit of a villain, but you gave him his own series. I know. I mean, it's really, really strange. Yeah. Having finished the Rebus series, Rebus having retired, I still want to write about Cops. I still want to write about Edinburgh. I thought I've got to have another character. I don't want people to get these books, these new books, and think they're getting Rebus with a different name or Rebus Light. And I'd been talking to someone who used to work in internal affairs in Scotland. It's called The Complaints. And I got a sense that this was a very different kind of person to Rebus. To work in that department, you've got to be scrupulous, cautious, work well on a team. You're, you're a professional voyeur. You're almost like a spy. You've got surveillance equipment at your disposal. You might be running a tap on a cop's phone if you think they're, they're crooked. You might have a van outside their, their home so you can be watching what they do on their computer. You can remotely be watching what they're typing at their keyboard. So I thought, wow, this is interesting. And, every, and the thing is, everybody hates them. Villains hate them because they're cops, and cops hate them because they bring down cops. So I thought, wow, so you've got the siege mentality. Uh, really interesting setup, really interesting dynamic. So I spent two books making Malcolm Fox, Internal Affairs Cop, the hero. When this book came along, I thought, oh, it's called Case Unit, so probably a Rebus novel. But hang on, they're changing the retirement age, so Rebus might reapply. And I I've contacted a cop friend of mine, and I said, could he reapply to come back in? Yeah, I suppose so, my friend said. I said, would he be vetted by Internal Affairs? Yeah, probably. So then I thought, whoa, so Malcolm Fox is in this book potentially as well. And the one thing I knew is that Malcolm Fox wouldn't want Rebus back because he represents a kind of policing that should have been consigned to the dustbin of history. One where you break the rules, you know, consistently. So, but I thought, hang on a minute, Rebus is the protagonist. That means that Fox must be the antagonist. Readers aren't going to like him because he's trying to stop Rebus coming back into the police and we want Rebus back. So it was really weird for me writing this book, making Malcolm the bad guy. Because to my mind, he isn't. He's doing his job. He's, he really honestly believes that Rebus wouldn't be good for morale and isn't a good cop anyway. And his way of thinking about the police is, is completely antithetical to Rebus's. And there's a little bit of personal history between them as well. But he's doing his job. But that makes him the villain of the piece. So can I go back to writing about Malcolm as the hero of a book? We'll wait and see. I really enjoyed it. I actually can't wait to see what he seen, what, how he reads as as the hero. Tell, uh, talk a little bit about the SCRU, the Cold Case Unit. Uh, it's an unfortunate acronym, isn't it? Screw. <laughs> yeah. um, serious Crime Review Unit. It's a it's a real it's a real thing. There's three retired detectives, one serving detective, working out of a small office in Edinburgh. 
and they just take old unsolved crimes, mainly murders, going back to the nineteen. I think they old. I think they go, they go back to the sixties, and they just look at if, is there any progress to be made? Maybe new technology has come along. Maybe forensics can help where they couldn't in the past. Maybe as people have got older and their guilt has played on them, they're ready to confess or they're ready to say what they knew at the time, but they wouldn't have said it at the time. And so I've spoken to these people, and um, again, it's it's perfect for Rebus, you know, because you give him a case to work on and he will just gnaw away at it like a dog with a bone. He won't let it go. So, I, you know, he's, I just could see him there. Um, but again, there's a serving police officer who will be in charge, and Rebus doesn't like people being in charge, so they... There's a few sparks fly there in the book. And, you know, amongst other things, I discovered that the in real life, the, the unit may be about to get wound up or wound down because the police are being reorganised in Scotland and instead of having eight regional police forces, we're just going to have one force for the whole of Scotland, which means there'll just be one cold case unit for the whole of Scotland instead of each region having a cold case unit also means the complaints, internal affairs, there'll be one internal affairs unit for the whole of Scotland. So Malcolm Fox might be out of a job. Rebus could be out of a job. There's, you know, it really annoys me that I've, I've chosen a, uh, to write about the police and the police won't play ball in real life. They keep changing the goalposts. They keep changing the parameters. And I've got to take that on board for the few dozen Scottish cops who read my books. You know, I can't get the details of the job wrong. I've got to get it right. Otherwise, they're going to just, they're going to be annoyed with me. One of the things I think you um, give us a really good sense of is the interplay between the the different regions uh, where the different uh, branches in, in the different area, areas. I'd like you to talk about that. Do you travel to these places and talk with the cops there or just kind of uh, poke around? Yeah, a little bit. I mean, in this book, um, quite a lot of it takes place in a, a city called Inverness, which is way in the north of Scotland and a place Rebus doesn't know. Um, so I drove up there and, as you say, I had a poke around. I just got out of the car, walked around the outside of the exterior of the police station, the police headquarters, was spotted by um, CCTV cameras and a police officer was dispatched outside to take my details down and get my ID and find out who I was and what was I doing here. And apparently, I mean, you know, I just went on my way, but apparently when this officer went back inside, having no idea who I was, and told the, the cops inside, oh, that was a guy called Ian Rankin, he's writing a book apparently. They all just burst out laughing and said, you must know who Ian Rankin is. And they were actually a bit annoyed that he didn't invite me inside because they would love to have um, shown me around and talked to me. So a couple of those guys have become useful contacts. I don't get to, I mean, I know some crime writers, some mystery writers like to have lots of police contacts. They go out on patrol with the police if they can, they take them out to dinner, they just, they're constantly meeting them and getting information. And I don't do that because I, because I don't want the books to become public relations exercises for the police force. I want to still feel free to write about cops who cross the line, cops who break the rules, um, cops who've gone bad. And if the only cops you're meeting are the good guys, you might feel constrained and you might feel you can't do that. So I limit my access to the police. If I've got a specific question or a specific problem, then there are people I can contact. But otherwise, I stay away. I, I really like the character, Siobhan Clark, and, and I'm guessing she's been with the with him for, for a while. Talk about creating this character. And one of the things that's nice are you go, when you do the POV switches, we'll get... A, 
will go from Rebus to somebody who's inimical to him and then to Siobhan. And that kind of balancing of the dynamics, I think, really works very well. And I'm wondering how much of this is just something that you come up with as a spur of the moment or is this more like planned like a river, you're mapping it out architecturally? Mm. I, I, I never plan my books. I've got a few pages of scribbled notes and then I start the book because the book always has a more interesting direction it wants to go in than the one I thought it wanted to go in. So I, I just trust the chance, I trust to the muse, I trust the serendipity. I've got a crime, usually I've got a theme I want to explore and the way of doing that is through a crime. So I've got a crime scene near the start of the book. But 50 or 60 pages in, the book tells me where it wants to go and I just hang on for dear life and hope that it's going to end up somewhere interesting. 30 pages from the end of this book, first draft, I had no idea who the killer was. I really? Didn't know, yeah, I knew as little as Rebus. I didn't know who the killer was. And I was trying to work it out, and I was going, it could be you, it could be you, it could be you. Siobhan, and there are certain things, I mean, you know, crime fiction, the reason that crime fiction isn't taken that seriously in some cultures is because it's seen as being too artificial a construct. And one of those constructs is the, the, the sidekick. The sidekick goes way back to the beginning of crime fiction and exists normally to ask the question the reader is desperate to have answered. So Dr. Watson is there to say, my God, Holmes, how could you possibly have worked that out? Right? That's what he does all the time. And, and, I, and the reader's going, yeah, tell me quick. That's what I need to know this. Rebus in the early days had a sidekick and it, as a homage, a nod to um, Holmes and Watson, the sidekick was called Brian Holmes. But then I realized that Rebus was a loner, that he really wasn't going to put up with a sidekick and didn't need one. So I got rid of the sidekick and Rebus worked on his own. But then I thought, well, he's becoming, he, he's in danger of becoming solipsistic, of becoming too entrenched in his own way of thinking about the world and doing things. Siobhan was introduced as someone who could ask the questions. Why, Rebus, where are you going? Why are you doing this? What do you think's happening here? But her personality was such that she began to take on a bigger and bigger role in the books until she had parity. She had the same amount of time on the page as Rebus did. And I do wonder if I could keep the series going with her as the main character if Rebus ever did retire full stop. Because I do think she's got a strong enough personality to do it. Now, she's conflicted. All the time she was Rebus's colleague, she was secondary to him. He was the detective inspector, she was a detective sergeant. Since he retired, she has had promotions. She's now running her own caseload, etc., etc. She's doing really well without him. She stepped out from under his shadow. So when he comes back into her life in this book, she is conflicted. She likes him. She's attracted to his way of using instinct and contacts to get results. He is on the side of the angels, whatever his faults may be. At the same time, she knows, and she's told this specifically by Malcolm Fox, she knows that if she gets too close to Rebus or starts to follow his instructions, she's in danger of getting into trouble with the police. And that would be the end of her career, or at least the end of advancement. So she's torn between wanting to advance through the ranks and get a very senior position, or, you know, being the chums with Rebus and breaking the rules, but having fun at the same time. Well, it provides a really nice uh, secondary kind of level of, of plot tension in the book. But you also give us some great uh, victims and the dead and the kin. And I think this is an important part of a crime novel that's not often uh, acknowledged is to give us, you know, uh, people who have died or passed on that matter in a way to us and that draw, keep us caring about the solution more than just finding out who the end of the puzzle. It's true. I mean, the, the victim 
the victim has had a, a tough time of it in crime fiction. You know, I mean, think of all the Hollywood movies, the Hollywood movies where there's just some brutal slaying um, by some serial killer and you don't get the backstory, you don't get to know anything about the victim. The victim is just a victim. They're just there to shock you at the beginning of the film. And that happens in crime fiction as well. We focus on the, on the, the aftermath. We focus on the detectives and we focus on the suspects. We don't think too much about the families, the bereaved, the people they leave behind. But the fact is that crime fiction specifically focuses on murder because murder is a unique crime. It's a taking away of something unique from the world. Somebody breaks into your house and steals stuff, you can usually replace it. You get beaten up, you usually recover. Murder is a taking away of something unique and irreplaceable from the world. Well, too, this book deals with disappearances, which are in many ways almost more sinister than murder because there's nothing you don't know. Yeah, I mean, what you've got with when someone goes missing from the world, when someone disappears from the world, you've got that uncertainty. There have been many cases in, in the UK. There were famously there was a couple of serial killers called the Moors Murderers. They were active in the early sixties, and one of their victims, whose body was never found, his mother was near death, she was aged and she was ill, and she pleaded with the one murderer, one of the, one of the couple who's still alive, to, to finally admit that he killed her son and to say where the son's body was. Uh, and the guy, the guy um, his name's Ian Brady, he didn't do that. What he did was he put the information in a sealed envelope and said this envelope can only be opened at my death. Well, of course, the mother predeceased him, so she went to her grave never knowing what was in that envelope or what happened to her son. Wow. It's extraordinary when this stuff happens. I Boy. mean, Brady, Brady's a special case. He's a, he's, a, he's a psychopath. I spent a lot of time researching him. But you're right. I mean, it's something, because it's intangible, because there is no end to the story, um, you're living in limbo. And you either have to decide at some point, well, I've got to get on with my life now. I can't keep living in the past. Or you're trapped in the past. And that's what happens to the parent in this book who comes to Rebus wanting him to take on the case is that she cannot give up. She cannot give up the search for her child and she has mythologized that loss. She has, in her head, decided as a serial killer out, her, out there who must have taken her child. There's no other explanation. The child cannot be alive after all this time. She would have heard something. And she works, she's an editor in the book and she works on myths and legends anyway. So she's got this mythology already there, sort of hardwired uh, into her. So she creates this, this story and, and sells it to Rebus, and then Rebus takes on the case on her behalf and tries for closure. What he does in every book, what he does every case he works on, is attempt closure. And he does that, he takes on these cases because in investigating other people's lives and failings, he's not having to think too hard about his own life and his own failings. So really the job is like a crutch for him. It's something that keeps them limping along. And crime fiction, per se, for those of us who write it, tends to be a kind of therapy. It tends to be a, a way of trying to explore the world and explain the world, make sense of the world. And at the same time, keep investigating that central question of crime fiction. Why do we human beings continue to do bad things to each other? One of the good things we do for one another <clears throat> is to make music. And music plays a, a big part in this book. 
And I love the sensibility of the kind of music that you uh, have John Rebus listen to. It seems perfectly to fit with both his character and his age. And, and I think that must require some careful attention on your part. It, it, it does. I mean, I've got to always make sure that the stuff he's listening to is age appropriate and everything else. That it isn't stuff I would be listening to, but he wouldn't because he's a good decade older than me. So he was grown, I mean, he was a teenager in the early 60s, so he was ripe for the, the mods and the Who and the Beatles and the Stones. I mean, I was a later generation. For me, it was T-Rex and Slade and bands like that that got me into music, Bowie, got me into music. But I do like the music he listens to. And what I found is that music, the kind of music that your characters listen to can tell the reader, the new reader, quite a lot about the character. So you've never read a Rebus novel before, but when he goes home at night and he's listening to Leonard Cohen or early stones, or Van Morrison. You can tell he's maybe not very gregarious, he's, he's quite self-contained, he's not a party animal, uh, he's of a certain age group, and he's probably blue-collar. He was brought up working class. If you were brought up working class, it was the stones. If you were a bit more kind of middle class, you tended to go for the Beatles. So you can start to get a template, you can start to get a notion of this guy, his interior life and his upbringing, just from the choices of music he makes. The title of this book is uh, comes from a, I think, I'm trying to remember it's a Mondegreen, is it? A Mondegreen, a misheard song lyric. I'm, I'm terrible. All my life I've been mishearing song lyrics. You know, Jimi Hendrix, Excuse Me While I Kiss This Guy, um, Desmond Decker, My Ears Are Alight. You know, I've been mishearing lyrics all my life. And um, a friend of mine, Jackie Levin, a Scottish singer-songwriter, not hugely well-known, We'd become friends. Rebus was a fan of his music. Jackie apparently was a fan of the books, so it was a big thrill. And we worked together. We made an album together. We toured together. And he took ill just at the time when I was starting to think about this next story, which was this book. And he died very quickly. So I was listening to a lot of his music and the refrain in one of his songs, I thought, went, I was standing in another man's grave. I checked a lyric book and I was getting it wrong. It was standing in another man's reign. But by then it was too late. I had my title. I thought this is the perfect title. And I could actually see the opening scene. It'll open at a cemetery. There'll be a graveside. We'll wonder whose the grave is. Um, there's someone standing there watching. That person is Rebus. He goes to his car, puts on the high fives. He drives away and he mishears the lyric, standing in another man's grave. So the whole book is, it's, firstly, it's dedicated uh, to the memory of Jackie Levin. And then also the beginning of each part of the book, there's a little italicized couplet, and that's from one of his songs. He was a great singer-songwriter, great lyricist. Uh, I miss him, and I wish he was better known. But I'm keeping his memory alive, in a way, by using him in his book. I have to say that when I gave the title to my publisher, they hated it. The original title, working title, was A9, which is the road, the real road in Edinburgh, where uh, in Scotland, where a lot of this stuff happens. They thought, oh no, we don't like A9, that sounds like a brand of, of barbecue sauce. So then I said, OK, what about this? Standing in another man's grave. They said, no, we don't like that either. It's too long, far too wordy. So I went away and did some research and went back to them and said, look, it's got exactly the same number of letters as the girl with the dragon tattoo. And that didn't do Stieg Larsson any harm at all. So my publisher, who was one of the many publishers who actually turned down Stieg Larsson, was, was chastened. And he said, OK, you can have it. That can be your title. I think it's a great title. I think it's very evocative. And one of the things I think I really loved about this book was that it's a great introduction to Rebus because we catch him kind of at a reboot in his career. So I'm, I 
I really don't didn't feel like I was missing much from not having read the other books, although I want to go back and read them all now as a result. But uh, it this book unfolds in many layers. There are it slowly reveals itself to be about, have a number of conflicts. There's a lot of things going on. And one of the things I like are the different levels of villains. We have Cafferty, who's kind of a nemesis from the past. We have Hamill, who's a ne- nemesis from the present. We have uh, Malcolm Fox, who's also a nemesis. We have uh, Cowan, who heads the the cold case unit who also doesn't like uh, <laughs> Rebus. There are very few people who like Rebus, don't like Rebus, who well, like Rebus, and a lot of people who don't like him. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm not that keen on him either. And he would certainly, would hate me if he met He wouldn't hate me, but we wouldn't have anything in common or very little. We'd, if Rebus met me, we'd talk about music for a few minutes, and then that would be the end of the conversation because he would see me as being a wishy-washy liberal who's never to a hard day's manual work in his life. Yeah, there is a lot, of, I guess there's a lot of oppositions in this book. I think it goes way back to my PhD. It goes way back to that interest in Muriel Spark, Miss Jean Brodie. Is Jean Brodie the hero or villain of that book? I mean, in some ways, she's a very good influence on her girls that she teaches. On the other hand, she's a very bad influence on the girls that she teaches. That book was informed by Jekyll and Hyde, by this notion that within us we have the capacity for good and the capacity for evil. That book, in turn, had been influenced by another Scottish novel, hardly known at all, called Memoirs and Confessions of a Justified Sinner, about a young religious man who meets a charismatic stranger who persuades him that because he is a member of God's elect and will go up to heaven whatever he does on earth, he can do whatever the hell he likes, including murdering his own brother. And in that book, we're never sure if the charming stranger is a figment of a fevered religious imagination, is the devil, is a psychopath, we never know. It's never laid out for us. So I'm really interested in these opposites in this. There's a, a wonderful word that's used when people talk about Scottish literature. They talk about antisyzygies, being where extremes meet, bringing extremes together. And that, that's that good and evil thing playing out. So, you know, if you've got an old gangster in the book, I'm interested in bringing a young gangster, a trainee. You know, this guy wants to climb over that guy's shoulders and take over from him. How does he go about that? How does the old gangster feel about the fact that the world is changing around him and the the moral code he has, the other younger gangsters don't have? They're more venal. They don't have any moral code at all. How does Rebus feel about the fact that these days in the police, everybody's younger, everybody's college educated. He never went to college. Everybody can use a computer. He has no idea what Twitter is. You know, it's some fun in the book with that. So, yeah, I like to get as many oppositions in as I can, and I think it's a very central tenet of Scottish literature. It's just that you don't normally get it maybe so much in... or it's not maybe flagged up as much in crime fiction because crime fiction mostly isn't regarded as literature, I guess. Well, I I would certainly regard this as literature. It's very complicated and twisty and satisfying. And I'd like you to talk about uh, pacing those... Um, events in the book that provide the reader with satisfaction. I mean, as we go along, there are lots of scenes where you just go, all right, this is great to see happen. And and that's, uh, it seems that that is not easy to do. Well, it helps if you've got, I mean, you can't be a writer without without having a very vivid imagination. And I, I seem to have quite a filmic imagination. People often say that the scenes in my books, they can almost visualize them. They, they, they jump out of the page. Um, um, maybe that's because, you know, as a young man, I didn't read many crime novels, but I've watched an awful lot of crime TV shows and crime films. Everything from Shaft through The French Connection and The Godfather to 
Kojak and Columbo and Hill Street Blues. And you can't really have a detective novel without having action of some kind. What separates it from the thriller is that in the UK we have no guns. The police don't carry guns. So they detect, so you can't have a, you know, Chandler said, Raymond Chandler said, if you're bored or if you're stuck, just have a guy walking with a gun. A UK audience of readers doesn't believe in that so much because there are so few guns out there, even in the hands of villains. I, I could probably count in the fingers of one hand how many times in my 18 books I've had to use people with, I've had to have people with guns, whether that's the good guys or the bad guys. So you've got to find other ways of, of creating tension and creating conflict and, and creating a sense of endangerment. So Rebus is often endangered, but usually it's at the hands of someone who's using their fists or someone who's using a knife, you know, someone who wants them to disappear. Or it's self-endangerment because we always think maybe the next drink could kill him. You know, the fact he's drinking and smoking himself to death by degrees, we get a sense of that in this book as well. He's been lucky so far, but you're, you never get lucky forever, as his doctor tells him, you know. So, yeah, but the thing is, never having studied creative writing, I've no idea how I'd make that stuff work. It just does somehow work. Towards the end, you've got to, ra you've got to ramp up the tension, and you do that by maybe having a chase or just having your main character hone in on the person they know is the killer, the culprit. And then you get a kind of a chase. It may not be a physical chase, but you get them going after the person. Now they know who the person is that they want to get. In this book, I, I made it. I made it. Um, I tried to make it ambiguous. I wasn't, you know, right until the end. I wasn't sure if Rebus had made the right call. I'm not, I'm not going to give it away, but I wasn't sure that Rebus had made the right call until very close to the end. I thought he could be making a big mistake here. He could be accusing someone who's actually innocent, and it's a person they met 50 pages ago. They let go. Who's the actual killer? I wasn't sure in my own mind's eye. And I think that's why, you know, often you can't work out who done it until you get to the end of my books. Because I don't know who done it until I get to the end of my books. Oh, that, that makes them all the more enjoyable. Uh, one of the things, too, that I really like are the, the dialogues. You write, oh, Rebus is really fun to listen to him. He's, he's snappy. And with dialogue, the, the trick is, to write what what you have on the printed page is generally not what people are going to say or what they what you'd actually hear if you were to tape record conversations so you have to write something that looks real and feels real even if it isn't real yeah that's that's right i mean again i, I think you learn to do that stuff there's various techniques, but mostly what you do is you just read lots of writers. And the ones who do dialogue well, you say, how are you doing that? And you look at it a bit more closely. So you take someone like George V. Higgins, Friends of Eddie Coyle, some of the best dialogue you can get. Elmore Leonard, mm -hmm. some of the greatest dialogue you can get. And he'll do stuff like he won't identify who's speaking, and yet you know who's speaking because the rhythms and the inflections, the mannerisms are there. And you think, okay, so you don't need to say, he said, she said, he said, she said. You can cut some of that stuff out. If you've got, a, if you're, the person speaking has a particular distinctive vocal style, and then you can't put in stuff like I just did M, you can't put in M uh, or, or pause fillers and people stumbling, but you have to try and make it look real. Well, the one way of doing that is to read it out to yourself, read it out aloud, read it out aloud, and does it make sense? Does it flow? You know that famous story about Harrison Ford when he was making Star Wars and he was looking at the dialogue, he was looking at the script. And he said to George Lucas, George, you can maybe write this stuff, but you can't speak it. You know? <laughs> so speak it. You know, as a novelist, sit there and try and read the stuff out. Get your partner or your friend and do it. If it's a dialogue, get them to do it with you and, and see if it makes sense and see if the rhythms work. If the rhythms don't work, you've got a problem. 
So you can do that. And the other thing that I do is I, I just take stuff out. I'll say, if I take out the, this sentence or if I take out this word, if I take out this clause or this adverb or this adjective, does it still make sense? And if it still makes sense, then I leave the adjective or the adverb out and I allow the reader to, to work harder. So the reader does the work. They, you know, he said impatiently. Take out the impatiently and the reader will decide if the person is impatient or not. They'll, they'll know anyway from the situation and from what's being said. So you don't need to guide them too much. So trust the reader. Readers are intelligent people. We should trust them more. Publishers should trust them more. You know, my books get Americanized. The, the publisher will change pavement to sidewalk, the trunk of the car instead of the boot of the car, we'd say in the UK. And then American readers get annoyed. They say, but we, would, we know this stuff. We want to read your books because they've got local colour. And if you only strip that local colour out, they become less interesting. Well, that's one of the pleasures of, of reading uh, the prose is to have the, the British uh, dialect. One of the things I think, too, that, that works really well uh, in this book is the, the sob. <laughs> this, is a, this is actually a character, and I, I really like that, that, this, that you make his car, to a large degree, a character. Do you talk to your car? You know, I, you know, I've never owned a Saab in my life. I drive a Volvo. It must be something about Swedish cars, though, because Rebus has been driving that car since day one, so he's had it since 1987. And so it's like him. It's a battle-scarred veteran, you know, and it's a battle-scarred veteran that whose parts need replacing more and more, you know. It's, um, it's probably not much longer for this world, um, unfortunately. But I just love it. I just love the, you know, come on, a detective, films, TV, books, they've got to have a, a, a classic car. They've got to have a car that's seen life. They can't be driving a brand new SUV or something. That's just tedious, you know. Rebus likes that car because it works. It has consistently worked for him never let him down he goes on a very long drive in this book and it doesn't let him down and he pats it on the on the roof at the end and he's, he promises it a valet service when he you know when the when the the, the, the novel's finished uh, when the story's done it's seen life it's never let him down it's been there throughout his life no matter other people have come and gone relationships have come and gone the things that have stayed for him are the music the booze the cigarettes and his car now, there have been a couple of adaptations of Rebus, and I, I, I think I've actually seen some of the first set, which I think were maybe have reflected the books fairly well. But um, are we going to ever see something that is, I guess, more properly produced along the lines of Game of Thrones? Oh, I'd love to see that. I would love to see that. I mean, by the end, two actors were involved. John Hanna was the first actor who took on Rebus. I think you're right. I think the scripts were truer to the books. But still, they were two hours, so with ad breaks, it was an hour and 40 minutes. It was a 100-page script. So, you know, you were losing two-thirds to three-quarters of the book. Then they got a new actor in, Ken Stott. Fans were much happier with Ken Stott. They thought he was truer to the character of Rebus. Physically, he was more like him. But they took it down from two hours to an hour, so they took it down to 45 minutes, which is a 45-page script for a 400-page novel. And I, I didn't like that at all because you lost the nuance, you lost the character, you lost the atmosphere, you lost the city, you lost the theme that I was trying to explore. All you got was the bare bones of a plot, which you rushed through because it was just, that was it. One hour and it was gone. So when I got the chance to get the rights back, I got them back. So I've now got the rights again to Rebus and I'm in discussions with a TV company, a production company, 
and they want to make it more like the Scandinavian model, more like the killing or, you know, there's these shows now coming out of Scandinavia that are big in the UK, 20 hours for one police story, for one sort of story, the killing series one. Series two was 10 hours. Some of them get you get six hours. So, yeah, I think three hours, six hours would be great. You would get a much better sense of what's going on under the surface of these stories, what's going on under the surface of one of my novels. So, fingers crossed, production company. The actor, Ken Stott, I think is still interested in playing Rebus, if the script is right. Um, we just need somebody to pony up the money, you know. <laughs> somebody to have the confidence, because it's it's a million pounds an, an hour to make TV drama in the UK, which is $1.6 million an hour. And TV companies don't have the money they used to have. So mm. we need some. We need a leap of faith. You know, the Scandinavians can do it. So maybe we can too. Are you working on another Rebus novel, even as we speak? I should be. I should be working on a book. I, normally, I start to think about a, a new book, October, November, do the plot in November, December, start writing it beginning of January. This year, this book um, was published a bit later than normal in the UK. I toured the UK, I toured Australia, New Zealand. That was November, December taken care of. Christmas, New Year. January saw me planning to come to the States on tour. I'm not going to get back until the 3rd of February, so I'm a month behind schedule already. It, the book is taking shape slowly in my head. Um, I've got about eight pages of notes which is as much as I usually ever have when I start writing a book. Uh, but I'm not going to jinx it by saying what it is. Check check my Twitter feed in a month or two's time, and I'll probably tell you. That sounds like a plan. I've been speaking with Ian Rankin. His new novel, starring Inspector John Rebus, or ex-Inspector John Rebus, is Standing in Another Man's Grave. Thank you for joining me, Ian. Thank you. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.